Today from the Global Lane, social media is censoring hydroxychloroquine advocates, including doctors. They don't like something, they just basically put stop to this. In Washington, D.C., a taxpayer-funded BLM mural is okay, but pro-lifers get arrested for chalking? They're putting on a sidewalk, black pre-born lives matter. Antifa on the move, now threatening to tear down a 56-year-old cross. And why the health of America's children is at greater risk if schools remain closed. And it's all right here on the Global Lane. If you take to social media and share your belief in the effectiveness of hydroxychloroquine in treating COVID-19, you may be censored or find your access restricted. Now, that happened recently even to some doctors, like Cameroonian Stella Emanuel of Houston, Texas. She was educated in Nigeria. Meanwhile, U.N. Secretary General Guterres warns that COVID-19 has caused the largest disruption to education in world history, with one billion students affected in 160 countries. He says 40 million children worldwide have missed out on education in, quote, their critical preschool year, all because of shutdowns caused by the coronavirus global pandemic. So what should be done? Joining us to share his medical expertise is Dr. David Samadi. He's director of men's health at St. Francis Hospital in Rosslyn, New York. Dr. Samadi, thank you for being here. First, I've got to ask you, hydroxychloroquine, what do you think of medical uh, professionals being censored by Twitter, Facebook, and other social media simply for saying hydroxychloroquine is a highly effective treatment for COVID-19? Well... The biggest thing that the doctors need to know is that there are two sensitive words right now on social media, hydroxychloroquine and COVID. And once they start putting it on their tweets or Instagram on Facebook, that's becoming a red flag. So why we're being censored in this country doesn't make much of a sense. When you have a medical conference and we're talking about any topic, you can pick any medical topic you talk about. Half of the room read the same exact research article. They may agree with it. The other half may completely disagree. Understand that I never went out and said hydroxychloroquine is the cure. I didn't say that this is better than the vaccine. I never claimed any of those statements. It's always extremely well thought of after being in the media for many, many years. And it's only to give information to people, being positive energy, uplifting during this pandemic, and if there's any research paper out there, I just presented with my comments on it. And still, with no warning, they shut down my account. And the level of censorship is getting closer and closer to some of the socialist country. And that's why we need our politicians and people like yourself in the media to bring attention and something called hashtag stop censoring medicine. We want that to go viral and people to know that this should not happen in America. Now, this isn't just happening to people who think they're experts on this because they read about it online. These are doctors, medical professionals, scientists. It's happening worldwide. So why is it happening? Well, I think the media and the mainstream media and the social media companies, big tech, are biased. They basically want their narrative to get out. And if they don't like something, they just basically put stop to this. And, you know, we, we need to make sure that this stops because this can affect our whole life, from election 
to what we eat, to what we do, and they basically can control all of our life. How about uh, the accuracy of numbers that we're hearing on COVID-19, the number of COVID-19 cases and deaths? I know several investigative reporters have found people included in death statistics that had other actual causes of death. Also, there have been reports of some people being recorded as positive for the virus. They hadn't even been tested. Why is that happening? Correct. Well, there's a lot of, uh, unfortunately, uh, mistakes. There's a lot of patients that die with it or die from it, that it's all lumped together. And every time an investigation has been done and people have looked into it and have gone a little deep into these uh, calculations, in Florida, in Texas, in many different places, they're finding out that they retract those numbers, they reduce the number of deaths. So unfortunately, there's no transparency, there's no third party to look into this. Having said that, the numbers, even though for public, it looks bad, 150,000 people, that's a lot of people, but compared to the millions that all the models were predicted, and don't forget, hundreds of thousands of people die from cancer, from automobile accidents, from suicide. The statistics you just talked about, how kids are being affected by having this lockdown. So those numbers, while it looks huge for the public, compared to millions of people that die every year in this country, is still very small. So I think we're still doing a great job in controlling this virus, and we will get through this. Uh, quickly now, the shutdowns are harming the education of a billion students worldwide. What do you think about reopening schools and classes in person? Just how risky is that uh, not reopening to the health of the children? I think it's time to reopen the schools. Everyone agrees that this is the time. Our kids are completely being wasted away. They're not learning anything. The child abuse, anxiety, depressions, a lot of minority kids are getting their food. They're getting their technology. Not all of these kids have iPads and computers. So we are completely missing uh, on years of their education, and it's time to open it up. We have ways to make sure that they're from hand hygiene, from social distancing, protecting our teachers, making sure that there's some sort of hybrid uh, plan for the kids to come to schools, making sure that the area where the locker rooms were, there was big gatherings, that's all taken out and make sure that the kids are, you know, still going to school. They're still learning, going to see some kids that will be positive, tested positive for this. Some teachers may be coming up with positive tests and we need to take care of them. But it's time to open our schools safely and soundly. This is time. Okay, Dr. David Zamati, Director of Men's Health at St. Francis Hospital in Rosslyn, New York. Thank you for sharing your medical expertise and your insights today. Thank you so much. Pro-life activists under fire, a double standard on display in our nation's capital. The mayor of Washington, D.C. allowed a Black Lives Matter sign to be painted on a D.C. street. Also, the slogan, defund the police. But on Saturday morning, August 1st, police arrested two pro-lifers when they knelt to chalk the words, Black Preborn Lives Matter, on a sidewalk. Watch what happened. Can you talking? You're going to be placed under arrest. Okay. You know they do this every Saturday, right? Okay. This is completely public property. A major in political science. This is public property. You absolutely have to be joking. We're standing in front of an abortuary where they kill children every day. And you're taking young people away to, to the police department because they're simply putting chalk on a sidewalk. This is absolutely absurd. I cannot believe that the D.C. police 
will stand in front of a place where they kill black children and you're taking people to prison, to jail, just because they're putting on a sidewalk black preborn lives matter. Joining us to explain is Kristen Hawkins. She's president of Students for Life of America. Kristen, thanks for being with us. So please explain to us the D.C. police say you did not have permission from the city to use paint or chalk to write the words black preborn lives matter on a D.C. street. So actually it was in front of a Planned Parenthood clinic. So why did you want to do that? Did you have permission? Yeah, so Saturday was National Pro-Life Generation Sidewalk Day. We had students across the country going in front of Planned Parenthood and other abortion facilities to pray and counsel to women. And what we decided to do in D.C. was a little special. We wrote the mayor in advance, um, informing her that we now know that she has opened the streets in Washington, D.C. up for public expression, because not only did she use government funds to paint Black Lives Matter on the street, but she allowed a group of activists associated with the Black Lives Matter organization to then paint equals defund the police without a permit and in permanent paint. And she has not taken it down. In fact, the city has been out there touching up paint for her own mural and hasn't done anything to erase her mural. So our attorneys worked with us. We wrote a letter informing the city of our intent to have this event. We received a permit to assemble to make sure we had to have masks. We had to have under 50 people there in front of the Planned Parenthood. And we told the city that we would be painting uh, Black preborn lives matter because I mean when you think about this movement and this conversation we're having right now in America, we really need to be talking about the past and the present racism of Planned Parenthood and the fact that every single day Planned Parenthood ends the lives of 360 black children. So we told the police, uh, the police actually called us and asked us to use temporary paint, which we agreed. We purchased that. We arrived on Saturday. We never heard back from the mayor at all. We arrived on Saturday morning to paint with all of our student activists, our friends at the Frederick Douglass Foundation, who we partnered with this event for. And we were greeted with the mayor's response, which was six police cars. We were informed then that we would be arrested if we painted on the streets. So being good pro-life activists. We had a backup plan. We brought our sidewalk chalk. This is something that happens every single Saturday. Uh, pro-life activists, they go out in front of the Planned Parenthood to counsel women about their alternatives, the, all the other resources that are available to women besides abortion, and they always chalk on the sidewalk messages. So we just took our student leaders and we started using our chalk, started chalking out black preborn lives matter on the sidewalk, not even the street. And uh, two team members with Students for Life, a staff member who's also a student and one of our student leaders from Maryland were arrested for simply using sidewalk chalk. And we know that D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser is a longtime supporter, advocate of Planned Parenthood. But what reason did the city give for not allowing uh, you to exercise your free speech rights, but allowing others to do so? Well, you know, we were asking the police officers there at the scene, you know, what's going on? We do this all the time. You know, we've given, we gave you all notice. You all asked us to use temporary paint, which we purchased. Um, we asked them, who are you reporting to? Who's your boss? And the police officer in charge at the scene said, the mayor. Uh, we know that Muriel Bowser, the mayor here in Washington, has a deep relationship with Planned Parenthood. She was one of their honored guests when they opened up their new flagship 
uh, abortion facility there. She signed a bill into law there at the Planned Parenthood. Um, so we know what, what really is going on here. The charges that were filed uh, against Warner and Erica, the two young people who were arrested was destruction of public or private property, which is unbelievable. I mean, school children are allowed to sidewalk chalk on streets all over the city. The street, I was in the streets last night going to Fox News. I mean, there's graffiti everywhere in the city because of the protest. And then they had the audacity to claim that washable sidewalk chalk, that Planned Parenthood could go out with a bucket of water and wash away in mere seconds was defacing property. Oh, yeah. So I was going to mention little kids use it for playing hopscotch, okay. writing their names, drawing on sidewalks. It washes away. It isn't permanent. Uh, so you actually you mentioned you had two people arrested for chalking and mm -hmm. you mentioned the charge against them. So what's the punishment for them? Them uh, Is it a misdemeanor, felony, jail time? Right fine? now it's a, it's, a, it's a misdemeanor. It's not a felony. We do not know what the fee will be. Uh, we are retaining criminal defense because obviously uh, Eric and Warner are innocent and these charges are ridiculous. Um, and so we have a criminal defense attorneys we've hired for them. Uh, Students for Life of America and the Frederick Douglass Foundation will also be pursuing a First Amendment federal um, lawsuit against the city, against the mayor for infringing on our constitutional rights to speech. The fact that the mayor not only painted Black Lives Matter, she made that government speech, but the fact that she allowed a group of activists then to paint without a permit and in permanent paint defund the police means that this is viewpoint discrimination, that she is choosing which phrases she's allowing to be painted on public streets. And you can't do that because of the Constitution. I wonder what would have happened if you had little children out there chalking hopscotch and then wrote the same thing that you wrote. I was wondering the uh, same thing. If I, my yeah. children were, were out there with me, we're not um, going out in public places because I have two children who have uh, special needs. So we're quarantining ourselves very strictly. But I was wondering that myself. If my children had gone out there and painted or started chalking the message for, you know, instead of adults, would they have tried to arrest my, my children? Protesters in Portland are now burning flags and Bibles at the federal courthouse. Local Christians are trying to remain positive, but Antifa's threats and efforts to attack anything or anyone that they do not like are now stretching beyond Portland and the federal building there. Radicals recently threatened to bring guns and gangs to pull down a 56-year-old cross from the grounds of New Hope Christian College in Eugene, Oregon. Their efforts were stopped. And the head of the college and pastor of New Hope Church, Wayne Cordero, joins us now with more. Pastor Wayne, tell us, why did Antifa threaten your college and the cross? Well, it came out about a month ago that uh, they were against uh, any race, racist monuments, and they deemed the cross as one because in 1922 to 25, the Ku Klux Klan were in the Eugene area, and they burnt a cross on a hill called Skinner's Butte. And... It wasn't until 1964 that another group put up a Christian cross to be a war memorial for those that died in the war. And, uh, but it was deemed a religious symbol, so it was taken down. It was awarded to our college. We put up this cross on private property at our college, but the uh, protesters see that it, it has to be some way connected with KKK, so they wanted to take it down and destroy it even though it is no longer on the property where the KKK did burn a cross. So how did your church members respond to this? 
Well, in mass, they showed up, and there were about 300 that showed up to say, no, we're going to draw a line in the sand against this kind of rebellion and uh, revolt, and we're not going to allow it anymore because they're eroding our Christian rights. And in fact, it would be deemed a hate crime, a religious hate crime, if they came and tore that cross down, because uh, actually there's an Oregon Revised Statute that says that that's a bias against someone's religion. And so they stood fast and stood strong and said, it's not going to happen. Now, were these Christians left to guard the cross themselves, or did they get any help from the Eugene police? The Eugene police and the SWAT teams were very helpful. They were willing to help in any way, but they couldn't be there. They said to call them. And because Antifa had threatened to have long rifles and uh, open carry, we felt we better get some security there. So we had a group of about 100 people that were security for a security measure. But should they have crossed the line, we would immediately call the police and let them handle it. But uh, nothing did come of this then. What happened? Well, some drove by uh, shouting vulgarities. Others uh, made other comments, and uh, they saw the massive amount of people. And we had another maybe 150 standing around the cross worshiping for about two hours because we felt that this battle would not be ours. The battle would be the Lord's. And so according to Second Chronicles 20, we just felt that even as the Lord said to King Jehoshaphat, you send out your praisers and singers and the battle will be the Lord's. And when they sang and praised, the scripture says, the Lord set ambushes. So we decided we're going to pray, we're going to praise, we're going to pray for the pro protesters, because we felt that maybe in amongst the protesters could be a Saul of Tarsus in there. And so we prayed for them, and uh, we heard a report that a busload or two of protesters were coming down from Portland and the police turned them away. So we are very grateful for the cooperation of our law enforcement. So not just the law enforcement, but the Lord turned them away. What difference did the prayer make in your opinion? Oh, I think it did everything. Ultimately, it's a spiritual battle, isn't it? It underlies everything that's going on that's crazy because the enemy is going to try his best to erode our rights. And if we volunteer, voluntarily give them up, he'll take more. And so we have to draw a line and say, enough, we're going to stand on the promises of God's word. We're going to take this to prayer and praise, and we're going to let the Lord take on this battle and begin to make a difference. And Pastor Wayne, I imagine uh, it isn't over yet. I imagine you're still on guard. Uh, this might not be the end of it. That's right. There's going to be a group of vigilant uh, people watching, a safety and security team, so we have cameras and uh, we have different uh, fences that have been built so that they know that they're trespassing. So we're going to stay vigilant and uh, watch for what they may do because they'll sometimes strike without us expecting it. Okay, Christians and their churches now under attack right here in the United States of America. Pastor Wayne Cordero, thank you for joining us from Eugene, Oregon. Thank you. With one month to go before Labor Day, the traditional end of summer, isn't it time we consider reopening our schools? Many states are opting for remote online learning instead of in-person classroom instruction. Why? Do we fear this virus so much that we're going to jeopardize our nation's educational future? Our children are our future. And I know what you may be saying. Sending them to classrooms is risky. It would jeopardize their health. Really?
I think it's quite the opposite. By not sending them, we're jeopardizing their health to an even greater extent, their mental, emotional, and physical well-being. Here's Center for Disease Control Director Robert Redfield. There really are a number of negative public health consequences that have happened to our K through 12s by having these schools closed. And so it's so important now to work together with school districts to figure out how they can take our guidelines and operationalize them in a practical way. Here are some statistics to consider. A COVID-19 survey found that 17.4% of mothers with children 12 and under said their children aren't eating enough because they don't have money for food. Did you know that 30 million children get their lunches at school? Closing schools means no school lunches. No school lunches means millions of hungry kids. And did you know that 7.1 million children get their mental health services at school? Mental health experts around the world report youth suicides and thoughts of suicide have gone up during this global pandemic. Children are in greater need now, and many parents can't afford it because they've lost their jobs as a result of gubernatorial ordered shutdowns. So you say, let them learn online. But what about children who don't have Internet access? As many as 12 million kids are without Internet. What happens to them? Also, what happens to children who remain at home without parental supervision? Do you have teenagers? Proverbs 16.27 says, idle hands are the devil's workshop. Same goes for idle minds. Our children need to keep busy, keep their minds active and educated. Many experiences can only come in school. How about a pat on the back, a teacher's encouragement for a job well done, or a smile and the laughter of a classmate when you see something silly or hear something silly? How about sports and band, experiencing teamwork and competition? Or how about woodshop or art, creating something out of nothing? You can't get that online or from a text message. All of us need physical feedback through facial expressions and personal touch. And did you know that by late July, only 126 children out of 74 million nationwide ended up in a hospital ICU because of COVID-19? Risky to open back up? Well, folks, if we can wear masks and safely shop at Walmart or Target, our children can safely attend school in person in their classrooms this fall. Only fear and politics are getting in the way. Well, that's it today from the Global Lane. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, YouTube, SoundCloud, iTunes, Parlor, and Twitter. And until next time, be blessed.